This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. First, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Credit Intel. Knowing the financial health of retailers is crucial for the success of your retail-related business. That's what Credit Intel is for. Credit Intel analyzes the financial health of hundreds of publicly and privately held retailers in different sectors. With a subscription to Credit Intel, you have access to comprehensive analysis of retailers' financial condition and their expert analytics team. Visit creditintel.com for more information. Today, I'm joined by Rick Helfenbein. Rick is a Forbes contributor. He was formerly the president of the U.S. operation of Lewin Thai, a Hong Kong-based apparel manufacturer. He was the president and chairman of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. Today, he is a retail and fashion consultant to many companies. I'm excited for him to be on the show. Welcome, Rick. Chris, thanks for having me, and I, I'm very impressed with the introduction. <laughs> well, Rick, why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about who you are and what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. I, uh, I've been in the industry my entire career. I was president of um, several branded uh, companies and manufacturing companies, and then I spent uh, 16 years as a private label manufacturer. Um, with a company based in Hong Kong. When we, when I started with them, we were $300 million. Uh, when I left about five years ago, we were 1.3 billion. So I kind of got to see the industry grow a bit. And uh, you know, over the course of time, I had a lot of interactions with Washington. So I joined a group down there called the American Apparel and Footwear Association. And uh, the Peter Principle must have been in play because I showed up at every meeting. They kept promoting me. Eventually, I became chairman of the board. And that was a big honor. And I was really happy, except the president quit. And then the the board kind of expressed an interest that maybe I'd like to run it. So I actually moved from the New York area down to Washington, D.C. And I was pretty much there for the entire Trump administration, which I would tell your viewers was very interesting uh, as it related to trade. And I got to see it from the inside. I was in the White House, I was up on the Hill, I was everywhere and um, quite an experience. So there you go. Very, very interesting. Not a lot of people get that perspective as it relates to retail. So we can dive into more of that later. What were some of the brands that you ran before Luintai? Well, probably the best, uh, well, there were two that were well-known. One was a company, a wonderful company based in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, called Campus Sweater and Sportswear, where I worked for many, many years. And the best brand we launched was a brand called La Tigra. Uh, and I was one of the people that named the brand. You can tell because I put the accent on the E and La Tigre in the wrong direction when we <laughs> copyrighted it. Uh, so I did that. And I also uh, ran, I was president of Lacoste Children's Wear, vice president of Men's Wear. So I had a, a pretty uh, pretty good glimpse into um, 
had a deal on all levels of retail. It was very interesting. Really cool. We'll dive more into fashion in a moment. But first, I want the audience to get to know you a little bit. So I've got three questions for you. Are you ready, Rick? I'm ready. All right. Question one. What is one thing most people agree with, but you do not? The thing that people would like to say is, uh, you know, why do we import so much? Why isn't everything made in USA? And I've been a big proponent of made in USA. But to be honest, in the fashion world, it represents only 3% of the entire industry. So people think I'm for it. They think I'm against it. In fact, I am for it. And we've been trying to build it. But it is extremely difficult for people who understand how apparel is made. It's very labor intensive. And when you're paying people $15 an hour, it's very hard to compete internationally. Interesting. I, I, I didn't realize that it was only 3% of apparel is made in the United States. That is quite an interesting stat. And it's growing. It's, it's, it was lower. <laughs> wow. Well, that's good that it's growing, but surprising. Okay. Question two. What is one skill you don't possess but wish you did? Oh, God. I do a lot of public speaking, so that's a win. But I'd love to sing, and I cannot sing. And I got the first clue to that in the sixth grade when I tried out for chorus, and it was the end of the day, and the teacher started crying. So I don't <laughs> sing, but I do talk. <laughs> Terrific. Okay. Last question. When is the last time you tried something for the first time? Actually, yesterday, wow. um, my uh, wife and I live in Manhattan, and in the middle of the day, we decided to go for lunch on the other side of Manhattan. We live on the east side, so we went over to the west side and had, had lunch. So it was something I hadn't done before, though. It was interesting. It was actually fun. Big city. People don't realize how big the city is sometimes. All right, Rick. So appreciate you taking the time to, as we call it, clear the air. Let's start talking to some fashion, though. So... On a high level, up in the clouds, can you describe the fashion industry to us today? Sure. The fashion industry has um, many components to it. Um, it's funny, in the old days, when I started in business, uh, factories were in mostly in the South of the United States. And in order to sell their product, they would brand themselves. So you had a lot of brands that actually came out of the South. Then later on, uh, developed into marketing companies. Uh, an excellent company like Ralph Lauren uh, is a brand that became a marketing company. In the beginning, they actually manufactured very closely uh, with some of the people um, down South. And then eventually they realized they would promote themselves at a brand as a brand and carefully manage the production. And they do, they're really involved with the production of, of Ralph Lauren product uh, globally, but they don't manufacture it. So you have brands that people think are manufacturers and the world divided into two segments, the branded segment and the private label or manufacturing segment. So you have a lot of companies out there that all they do is make for um, big name brands and all the big name brands do is market the product under tight manufacturing supervision. Um, but, you know, 
you can name a lot of companies like like Uniglo. Um, are they a brand or they're a manufacturer? They're actually a retailer that manufactures. Um, then you have department stores that went into the private label business. So they have their own labels where you manufacture exclusively for them. And uh, some are very good at that. Usually they make more money uh, under their own brands and they try to keep that assortment somewhere between 17 and 20% of the store. Wow, a lot there. So let's unpack that. I think it was incredible insights. So let's go to the first piece. When you mentioned the difference between these branded companies versus the manufacturers like Ralph Lauren. First piece, I think you articulated it well, and I'm going to repeat it. Ralph Lauren, you characterize as more of a marketing branding company because they are not actually manufacturing their goods. Correct? That is correct. Do they design them? Absolutely. And not only do they design them, but Ralph is involved in everything. To this day, he is involved in everything. Actually, a number of years ago, when I worked with them more closely, um, they would have line reviews and somebody would follow Ralph with a sticker and the little sticker said RL Lights. So Ralph would go around the room and you know, he'd touch something and go, I like it, they put a sticker on it. That meant further development. Well, that was great, except sometimes Ralph would get a phone call and he'd be on the phone and he'd be feeling things and they were stickered everything around him while he was on the phone. We had <laughs> a lot of wild goose chases. But, you know, that's a company that is top down from design. And then when they, the manufacturing side, they are extremely involved. Now, they're not running the factory but they're there, they're in it, and they know the product that's coming out of it. I give them very high points. Got it. So they are marketing the product. They're a brand that's world-renowned, and they are designing it. They outsource the manufacturing with heavy supervision. So that's one segment of fashion today. Another segment that you talked about was this private label segment. Right now, I've seen Target has a ton of private label brands that they've turned into billion dollar brands. It's quite impressive. And in that scenario, can you walk us through how the private label part of the fashion industry works? Yeah, it, it's kind of simple. It, it essentially cuts out the middleman. Um, when What I mean by saying that, is if you're a brand, you have a whole team, you design product, you market, and then you sell it to a retailer. Ralph Lauren, as the example, sells to retailers or sells to their own stores. Um, when a department store does private label, there's no brand, it's an in-house brand. So that whole entire uh, level is eliminated. So they meet, they uh, buy their product. Of course, there's risk involved in buying your own product. You can't return it. You own it. Um, but you have trend lines. So you sort of know what direction you're going in. You know how much to buy. And the reason that the brands went into that, it, they make more money uh, doing that by cutting out that branded middleman, going direct to the factory. It's more profitable. And at the end of the day, retailing is, you know, it's fun, it's exciting, it's fashion, this, it's that, but it's about making money. And that's why they do it. They supplement 
what they buy from brands by doing it themselves. You know what's interesting? Private label, this has been around for a long time. The private label industry feels so much like the direct-to-consumer industry because at the end of the day, you have this retail operation that has their own product line that no one else can sell or other people can sell if they decide to sell it to other people. Then it wouldn't be their own private label anymore. But they go to the, they design it, they go to the manufacturer, they produce it and sell it out of their stores, which is essentially what many of the direct-to-consumer brands do. They create their own product, they typically outsource it, the manufacturing, and they sell it through their own retail channels or their own websites. No different than Target does with their private label brands. So direct-to-consumer is a fun new buzzword, but it feels so much like the private label brand business. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, two aspects of that. First of all, direct-to-consumer is becoming a big part of uh, everybody's business. You see that like brands like Nike that have their own website that they're selling direct to the consumer. And, and their own stores. And their own stores. And they've cut out a lot of the smaller stores and help uh, launch the Nike brand to begin with. But there's, um, you know, for every good news, because that's, um, again, a way of making more money, more margin, um, somebody always finds a, a, a flaw or a hole or a loophole. And there was an article just recently um, in Bloomberg where <laughs> there's a company out of China called Shein, which is the fastest downloaded app in the United States. It, some people call it Shine, but it's Shein, S-H-E-I-N. And they're selling to teenagers direct from China and they're shipping direct from China right to the consumer. And it's exploding. Um, and it's good news, bad news. And I, I'll tell you uh, one of the flies in the ointment. There's something in America called de minimis. De minimis means, uh, in government terms, you can bring in $800 per person per day, every day of the week. It was probably, you know, when you say that, you think of, you know, old people uh, getting off cruise ships with Rolexes, you know, stuffed in their suitcases. $800 per person per day. Well, truth be told, you can ship direct from China by U.S. mail with the same $800 per person per day and avoid paying duty on it and avoid paying the Trump tariffs on it. And something like a T-shirt, for example, a company like Shein has a 24, um, about a 24% price advantage um, shipping into the United States direct. So I think, uh, I think people are suddenly waking up to the fact that, you know, a system that was set up to accommodate Americans <laughs> is challenging the retail system and the tariff systems we have here at home. Wow. That is fascinating. I never looked at it like that. A wealth of information there. Let's take a step back. Is there a difference? I think it's important for the consumer or the, the listeners out there before we move on to that fascinating topic. Is there a difference in your opinion in direct to consumer and private label business? Well, in the private label business, you're, you're 
upfront designing, you're purchasing, you're putting in store out to the consumer. The direct-to-consumer, you can test it first. If it doesn't go, you stop making it, you go on to something else. You have much more flexibility in terms of inventory control. So how you handle private label is different than how you handle direct-to-consumer because when you're dealing direct-to-consumer, you know exactly what's going on. You don't have to throw it out on the shelves and hope someone comes along and buys it. You can put it out, you can pull it back. Different. And why can't private label do that? They don't have the um, flexibility because you're buying it up front in hopes of selling it versus testing it. You know, when you deal with retail, everybody knows the selling season isn't very long, particularly like in the spring season. Starts in March and it ends July 4th. So, you know, by the time you test something, you can't fill it in. Uh, Zara has done a, you know, a pretty good job of, you know, putting stuff out and then filling it in. But in general, most retailers can't chase it. Particularly now, as you know, any retailer who's listening to this broadcast knows there's a myriad of shipping problems. Uh, It's extremely difficult to get product into the store. So when you're dealing again direct to consumer and you can set up closer to the manufacturing source, you have a lot more flexibility. Different worlds. Got it. Okay. Now let's go to the next piece that you talked about, which is this whole tariff thing and was something put in place long ago for Americans to not put taxes or duty on goods. And now direct to consumer or foreign direct to consumer company is taking advantage of that, which is putting stress on other retailers and fashion brands. Absolutely. You know, the, the, um, the tariff system was set up Uh, actually around the time of the Great Depression, the 1930s, uh, was something called the Smoot-Hawley tariffs. And they were set up to protect American industry. And particularly in apparel, those tariffs stuck. They are still with us today. And we still pay them today, but the market has adjusted to them so you don't feel it. So when President Trump decided to punish China and add tariffs on top of the tariffs, the industry went uh, literally um, nuts because paying a tariff on a tariff was just not something we felt the consumer would uh, take lightly. So we fought it tooth and nail. We lost, but um, maybe someday they'll go away because they are ancillary to the core. but you were correct, Chris, that you know we have a new um, new breach of the of the firewall, so to speak. We have people shipping from Canada and people shipping from Mexico and people shipping from China direct to the consumer and avoiding tariffs and avoiding uh, a lot of the shipping problems. Kind of interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. How could what most people Consider traditional, either direct to consumer, traditional third party retailers, or direct to consumer brands like a, like Nike is trying to be, or Yeti is trying to be. How can they compete with this new distribution channel of 
products from overseas? Uh, it's hard. Look, honestly, it's hard to compete. Um, it hasn't become so huge that, you know, it, it's putting a major dent in the market yet, but it is a loophole that people are starting to take notice of. And, you know, companies will fight this and the government will probably get involved in some way, shape or form because, you know, things like this aren't fair. We're struggling enough to get back to work and get things up and running that, you know, we don't need unfair competition right now, even though it is legal, it is still not fair. So, um, you know, powers greater than me will help sort that out over time. Got it. Is there anything outside of legislation? Like, could brands start to do something similar to Shein? Actually, um, some are doing things like Shein. Um, to what extent, it's hard to say at this point, but you've got additional problems that have entered into this. Now, I mentioned um, to you earlier, we were talking about, you know, maybe you would say 3%. Uh, however, you have to look at the backside of that. What's, where's the 97% that I didn't talk about uh, coming from? And catch this, you'll like these numbers or you won't like these numbers. People, uh, you know, are, are down on China lately. However, in the fashion world, uh, 37% of everything comes from China. And I shouldn't say everything, apparel. It's even higher in footwear, but let's just talk about apparel. 37% of apparel comes from China and 14% comes from Vietnam. That means 53% of everything you see in the stores is coming from two countries. You want to add in Bangladesh, Cambodia, Indonesia, and India, you've got more than 70% of everything that's coming into to the United States is coming from those countries. And then when you look at China with a 37% market share, which by the way is down from 39%, and that's after everybody's been saying, you know, all these things about China. There's other issues happening at the border now. Uh, there's legislation um, pending in Congress, both from the House and from the Senate um, against the area of China called Xinjiang, where they worry about forced labor and they worry um, about the cotton coming into the country and US customs has been issuing what are called WROs, withholding release orders against product coming into the country. So you're bringing goods in, they could be stopped at the border. And then when the government comes through and passes um, their Xinjiang Forced Labor Act, if, if it gets passed, um, it's gonna create further problems at the border. So the fashion industry is trying to figure out where do we go? Where do we, put our goods and how do we avoid, you know, all these problems, and the tainting of potential forced labor, alleged forced labor, because we, we don't know for sure, we just uh, wonder out loud. So there's a lot of things going on in the industry right now that are of concern and has to do uh, to a large degree about how heavily the United States relies on China as a resource. Truly fascinating. A lot that I've learned from this. So thank you. 
I want to move though from these challenges, which clearly there are, to the opportunities for the fashion industry. And let's talk about some of the positive that's happening and where we think the opportunities lie. Well, here's the good news. You know, with, with every degree of concern, there's good news. And, and obviously the good news is people have been home. <laughs> They've been living in sweat clothes and now they're going back to the office, which means they are going to buy clothes. Um, and National Retail Federation is predicting a battery year. Up, up, up sales will be there. Um, so everybody's pretty excited, you know, conditioned on the fact we can get the goods through the ports and, you know, survive all the increases in prices that are headed our way. But no matter how you slice it, barring another lockdown, retail's going to be really, really good for at least the next year and a half. Um, there's desire to buy product. Of course, I will temper that with there are also concerns. You know, with all this inflation talk, if prices get too high, sales tend to drop down a little bit um, because I was going to go in and buy three T-shirts, but ooh, the price went up, so now I'm only going to walk out with two. And that's the type of thing that happens. Yeah, there are things that retailers can do to fight inflation. They can do bundling. There's shrinkflation and there's other methods that retailers can do to, to fight inflation. I would say... The reality is, though, price of apparel has been under pressure for so long, and there has been a significant amount of markdowns in the industry in order to move product. And this might be the opportunity. I always say scarcity creates margin uh, for retailers to get some margin back. And I think that would be good for retailers, even if they pushed less out the door they might be able to create more margin, which I think would be extremely helpful to the retailers who have had this race to the bottom. Yeah, Chris, you are absolutely 100% correct. The opportunity to raise prices is a win. Uh, the chance to increase margin is a win. So if you sell less product at higher prices, you're prone to do better. Uh, one of the concerns, though, um, of late, as a matter of fact, of last week, was the number of quits, Q-U-I-T-S, in the retail industry suddenly skyrocketed and people are leaving, which means retailers will be paying more for their labor. So if the cost of labor goes up along with the cost of product, the squeeze is back on. And, you know, that's one of the things that everybody who analyzes this and looks at it starts to worry about. Yeah. I'm concerned I'm hearing everything about the employment. I, I do think that retailers will hire innovators, will figure out the employment and overall the opportunity to not have to mark down goods is something that's long overdue. And I think that will be good for retailers. I agree. I absolutely agree. The moral of the story is I am cautiously optimistic. I would like to agree with NRF and be 100% um, optimistic and bullish. I believe we're going to sell more product. I believe in the near term, we're going to be just fine. But I, I do have my concerns. And, um, you know, it's just reality, Chris. You go around and you talk to people and everybody's struggling to uh, get labor. 
uh, to get people to work in the stores. And, you know, like they, one of the things they love to blame is the extra $300 uh, in unemployment benefits. And young people who might be working in retailers say, you know, I'm getting unemployment. I get this extra benefit. I'll just take the summer off. And when it runs out in September, I'll come back and go to work. And, you know, we're hearing a lot of that. Doesn't mean it's true, but we are hearing it. But one thing is true, it's hard to get employees. And if you can't get employees, you can't run your store. And if you can't run your store, you can't do business or you can't service uh, your your customers like you would want to. So um, these are all things that will settle down in time. But right now, time is short. Rick, well, this has been truly an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. And I've learned a lot. I know the listeners have as well. And I'm excited when to hear this. I want to take us to the last part of the show. We call it Retail Wisdom. I've got three questions for you. Are you ready, Rick? I'm ready. All right. Question one. What is the last thing over $20 you bought in the store? Pair of shorts at TJ Maxx. They have the best shorts at the best price. You can't go wrong. <laughs> I'm a big fan. They're a large tenant at DLC, and I'm a big fan. Okay. Question two. This is a fun one. I'm really interested on your answer, given your experience in the industry. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? My um, favorite retailer was dead, then it's half dead, and now it's coming back to life, which is Century 21. My favorite store in the world to shop at because you could just go and get lost and you'd walk out with a deal when... They announced they were closing. I was devastated. I'm thinking, what am I going to do with my shopping life? And, you know, then I heard they're coming back. Will it be the same? Will it be different? I do know it's going to be international besides being national. But, you know, love that store. And I do hope they come back strong. Okay. Last question, Rick. If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? You know, that's a great question because... Uh, I look at Target as a um, need need or want store. If I need something, I will go to Target and I go for something very specific. So I'm not usually wandering in Target. I walk in, I get what I want and I leave. Now I've been in the sportswear business for years, so I always will walk by that. <laughs> men's and kids area to see what's going around and what the prices are. But, you know, again, people shop because they want something or they need something. What aisle would I find you in? Um, like I said, I'm specifically motivated when I go there. I'm going there to get something. So depends what it was that I needed when I left home. Okay. Rick, this was incredible. Thank you so much for the time and let's stay connected. We can chat. I can give you some insights on what's going on in the real estate side of retail and we can uh, share notes. Great, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.